hoping on baptism morning we can <clears throat> appreciate a little bit of the symbolism that's built into what we do in dunking people in water. <clears throat> if we were celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, the other ordinance of the church, I think it'd be easy for you to say, okay, I, I get the elements here because Jesus clearly articulated, right? This, this cup represents the blood of this covenant that God makes to forgive us, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 talks about Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36. Um, <clears throat> and the bread, his body, right? The bread that's broken. You could make those connections. But the water, you know, it's like, what, what's, what's with the water? <clears throat> well, there's several things in Scripture, of course, that tie together the theological importance of who God is with the concept of water. And when we, do, when we have a baptism service, sometimes we don't make that connection. We talk a lot about the distinction between being placed into Christ when we make an appeal to God in repentance and faith and then what this is. But <clears throat> I just thought it'd be good for us to stop for a moment and to think about this concept of water. It's easy to think about the Passover being modified, that Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And though you would eat lamb at a Passover meal, that's been taken out because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, but we still have the bread, we have the cup, and those things represent the body and blood of Christ. And they represent things that, we, that are not recreatable. Right? The death of Christ is something in history. We remember it by these tactile experiences with the bread and the cup, and, and that's helpful. Um, the water, <clears throat> I think, is uh, one thing that doesn't tie so directly in people's minds to our salvation, but it ought to. We don't tie it to the hillside or the, the, the rock formation called Golgotha where Christ was crucified. Um, we just we don't, we don't know. We may think about the cleansing, and, and that is certainly a part of it. But there was an interesting statement made in John chapter 19 when John makes a statement about the fact that when the soldiers uh, pierced his side with the spear... There at once came out, it says, look here on the screen, both blood and water. <clears throat> a lot of times people think about anatomy and they think about, you know, there's things that may explain something that looks like water, or maybe the pericardium around the heart, or there's other clear fluids in the body. Maybe that's what this was. But that doesn't really make sense of what comes next. John here, the witness to this, says, he who saw this is born witness. It's like, okay, if this is just a natural thing that happens, this isn't the first time they've pierced the body, Right? It wouldn't be the first time that some clear fluid might come out in small amounts in a human body as it was being crucified or some autopsy or cutting up a corpse or whatever that they've experienced in the past. But he says, no, 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 I saw this. I bore witness to it. And he speaks of himself in the third person. His testimony is true. I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth. And he knows that he's telling the truth. I mean, three times over. It's like that's a lot of emphasis for talking about something that is a natural thing that happens. Uh, this seems to be, just even by the clues of this particular statement, some kind of testimony to some kind of supernatural thing that's taking place at the death of Christ. And um, no detail, right, is unimportant. I mean, every year we go back to the Good Friday experience and we think about all the details and we think about every one of those having some kind of significance and some kind of meaning. And he says, I want you to know that this happened so that you may believe so there's something about Christ's death, something about not only his blood being shed, which is a clear picture of this whole uh, Levitical system of animals dying, the atonement, blood, even back to the garden where animals were killed to clothe or atone. That's the word kafar in Hebrew, to cover the sins of men and women, at least symbolically, the shame of their guilt. But, but the water part, that, that has to be, uh, at least in our mind, kind of tied together with lots of little hints throughout the Bible. 
No superfluous details, all the details of Scripture helping us understand something and emphasize something. Uh, and when it comes to water, we think, well, that's such a ubiquitous part of our experience. We know, we, you know, water, we interact with water every single day. I mean, you need water, you're drinking water, and if ever there's a crisis, we send groups around the world. If there's an earthquake or some problems, people can't get clean water. we got to get water to where they're at. We have to pass it out because water, without water, we die. We need water. Well, when God took his people out of Exodus and he was going to bring them into Canaan, the promised land, it became a real foundational, historic example of everything else that would represent our redemption out of sin, out of our culture, out of our fallen world, to go and be his people in a kingdom where righteousness dwells, that picture of redemption, purchasing them out of Egypt into the promised land. I mean, that's a picture that uh, certainly involves water. As a matter of fact, it involved the fact that they didn't have water when they were there in the Sinai Peninsula at a place called Rephidim. Look at this passage from Exodus 17. The people of Israel, they camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Now, that's a problem, right? Therefore, they're angry. They're upset. They're upset with Moses. They quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Same thing you would say. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dehydrate, and we are going to die in this thirsty land. So Moses, right, he's stuck now. He's gotten them through this Red Sea. The water's parted. Get this interesting picture of that, which is picturing parts of our redemption. But now we're thirsting in the desert, and Moses cries out to the Lord, what shall we do, this pe- to do uh, with this people? I mean, they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're thirsting. They are ready to stone me. They're ready to kill me. The uprising, the revolt, they don't have anything to drink. They're looking at me saying, what have we done? And the Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> take in your hand that staff with which you struck the Nile, right, and the, all the plagues that took place, the power of God represented in that extension of Moses as the prophet of God. Take that staff, go, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. But first, the concept of striking the rock, it starts with, and I'll stand before you there on the rock, and then water's going to come out and the people will drink. You often think, if I said, do you remember, if you're a Sunday school grad, them getting water out of the rock when they were in the desert, in the wilderness, you'd say, I remember that. I mean, it's happened more than once. But at the beginning here, when they're thirsting at Rephidim for the first time, you say, yes, I remember that. But we often forget this line, that here, God says, I'm going to stand before you there on the rock. The angel of the Lord, who is the agent throughout this whole scene in the desert, goes before Israel, he's speaking first person for the triune God, the God of the universe, and he sits there in this statement as as Moses cries out to the Lord and says, I'm going to stand on the rock. Now what I want you to do is to strike the rock. If I say, I'm going to stand on this stool, and now I want you to strike the stool. I mean, you get the imagery here. At least you can read back in the imagery when you look elsewhere in the scripture to see something very interesting that takes place. The provision that you need is going to be granted to you when I'm struck, right, here on this rock. You can't strike the rock without striking at least this personification of the God of the universe. There's going to be a striking of this, of this person, of this rock, and uh, then you're going to have what the people need to survive. The New Testament, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, which we are studying in Acts right now, if you're with us on our regular weekend services. <clears throat> and Paul is uh, writing back to them a few years later, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, right, the ancestors of Israel, were all under the cloud. Remember, the cloud guided them around the wilderness. They all passed through the sea. The Red Sea parted, right? 
They were all baptized into Moses. Now, we use the word baptized. They were placed into Moses. Why? Because God was very angry with the people. He was going to destroy the people. But God had favor on, on Moses. So these people were treated for the favor that was on Moses as though they were in with Moses and were Moses, even though they weren't Moses, they were bad. God was going to punish them. He cries out as an intercessor, says, no, don't punish them. God has favor on Moses. He says, I'm going to treat the people as though they're in you. They're all baptized into Moses. And they're baptized into the cloud. They're following this cloud, the direction of God, and in the sea. And all who ate, ate the same spiritual food. And we taught on this not long ago, the idea of the manna becoming their very important and special imagery of all that God would do in New Testament theology. But the point here is they got provision. God took care of their food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, okay, there's got to be more to it than just water. I mean, there is. There's a spiritual New Testament truth in this, but he says they drank, right, from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Just think about that statement. The rock was Christ. That takes us back to Rephidim. It takes us back to Horeb. It takes us back to that picture of the angel of the Lord on the rock and the rock being struck and provision being given. Now, the rock that followed them, it's not like a cloud led them or a pillar of fire by night, and behind them was a big movable boulder. We're talking about chronology here right? 1,400 and 45 years later, the birth of Christ takes place, and we have Jesus grow here into this uh, human being who fulfills all righteousness and absorbs all of our sin. The rock that followed them, that provided what we needed, right, followed them 1,500 years later, and that rock was Christ. But they drank from that spiritual rock. They drank from Christ. They were provided what they needed in Christ, Here's a line that Jesus quoted in his ministry, and you know this if you read the Gospels, when he's about to be crucified and everyone's, uh, they're, they're, they're stating their undying devotion to Jesus. And I would never betray you, I would never leave you, and all of that. And Jesus quotes Zechariah 13. Do you remember this passage? <clears throat> he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, he says that in, in initially in drafting that in that discussion in the Gospels to talk about the fact that you are going to scatter. First, they're going to scatter in fear. Later, they're going to scatter being endowed by the Spirit throughout the book of Acts to go share the Gospel all over the ancient world. And so that's true. They're going to be scattered in mission eventually, but in fear at the outset. But they do that when the, uh, the sword here strikes the shepherd, that picture of the incarnate Christ who is the shepherd of his people. He keeps calling himself that. John 10, the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice. He's going to be struck. Now look how this passage started seven verses earlier. On that day there shall be, look at this, a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sins and uncleanness. There needs to be some kind of cleansing. There needs to be some kind of provision. There needs to be something that sustains you. There needs to be a provision that God gives you, and it's going to happen when the shepherd is struck, right? When the sword, or as we see in John 19, as the spear pierces the Messiah, right? There will be a stream, a fountain, a source of, of, of cleansing that comes from that striking of the shepherd. Just as that picture 1,500 years before Christ, here, the Lord says, I'm going to go stand on this rock. You strike the rock, and provision will be given. Look at how Isaiah alludes to this by the Spirit giving us this sense of what's going to happen in Isaiah 43. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now springs forth. Uh, now it springs forth. Uh, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, in the desert, rivers in the desert. I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, 
to give to drink to my chosen people. So cleansing and sustenance. You need water to survive. You need cleansing to be acceptable. You can't go into the promised land out of the sinful uh, culture of Egypt, right? The idolatry of Egypt into the promised land without going through this desert and finding this sustenance through the struck down shepherd, the Christ, the God man, Jesus Christ. It's just a, a, this is a rich picture. And it's one that was not missed clearly, obviously, by the second person of the Godhead who said often, right, about his connection to the living water of God. There was something called the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booth, Sukkot, this uh, festival, one of the pilgrimage festivals of Israel where all the Israelites were supposed to come to Jerusalem and they would set up their tents or their booths, all about the reminder of God's provision for them in the wilderness, the manna and the water from the rock. God provided what they needed and they would tent up around Jerusalem and then they would come to the Temple Mount and they would worship. And one of the things that would happen at the Feast of Tabernacles, Josephus, the historian, tells us at the time of Christ is that the priests would go and out of the Gihon Spring, they would draw water out of the spring, they would march into Jerusalem in a festival, in a religious festival, and they would quote Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So here is this picture, water is this imagery, it's poured out, by the way, believe this, on the altar, the historians tell us. So at the first century, they're pouring out water from the spring as this picture of some kind of joy of God saving with water. Well, Jesus, on the last day of the feast, of that great day, he stood up and he cried out. This is John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that's not an unusual or, or, or surprising imagery in the Gospels because he's constantly connecting himself to the fact that he is the sustenance and he is the source of cleansing for the people. Do you remember this from John 4 when he's having a conversation with that woman at the well? Right? She's at the well drawing water, wanting to draw water, and then he has this conversation. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, right, the salvation, the cleansing, the needful sustenance that can be provided through God through the striking down of the shepherd, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The idea of the water in Scripture, such a rich motif and metaphor throughout the Bible, that is analogizing for us the essence of what we need. It's a tangible symbol of the invisible realities that you are a sinner and I am a sinner and we need cleansing, that you and I cannot before God have the sustenance that we need. We need the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to our account. We need to be enriched by an alien righteousness, something that I did not do, the good that I could not provide. And to have that, to imbibe in that, to have that be in me, for me to be in Christ and to have his righteousness in me, that, 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 that I would die without. I can't, I would, I, would, I would be dehydrated, right? Without righteousness, without Isaiah. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Behold, your God will come. He will come. He will save you for water will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You'll come to the place where you realize, I can't, I, I, I can't have this. I can't do this. You heard the testimonies. I cannot be acceptable before God. I need some kind of sustaining sustenance that is exterior, that's alien to me. I need the cleansing, the forgiveness of sin. I need the infusing of righteousness. And that picture of water, that's the image throughout the scripture. Ezekiel 36, that probably be the first passage you would think of if I met you on the patio and say, quick, tell me, why is water a perfect analogy of people being brought into the family of God? 
right? They put their trust in Christ. They've been placed into Christ. Now we symbolize that with water. Why would Jesus have that be our ordinance? You probably think of this passage if you know the Bible, Ezekiel 36. And clearly it's about cleansing, but it's more than that. He says, I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. My spirit I will put within you and you will come and walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That's why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3 and he talks about being born of the water and of the spirit, he's not talking about natural birth. And again, people like the pericardium argument in John 19. They think, well, it must be born like when, when you're born as a baby and natural birth and second birth. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, as he says to this teacher of Israel, this is about the spirit, right? Making us new. Right? There's a, an invisible reality and the picture of water making us clean. The baptism is a great picture of that, but it's also the picture of the sustenance of the fact that we are cleansed. We're cleansed in the fact that we don't have what we need and we're sustained in that we don't have in ourselves what's required by God. And it happened when he took that staff in his hand, he stood there, God did this representation uh, image, whatever was seen or not seen there, the idea was I'm going to stand before you on this rock and you're going to strike the rock and provision will be given. And that's precisely what happened, not only in a tangible, literal way in the desert of Rephidim on the Sinai Peninsula, but what happened in reality, spiritually, the need that you and I had. Just like the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup remind us of the death of Christ, the dunking people into water, right, is a picture of what took place there in the desert and also what took place ultimately as it was fulfilled in that typology in Christ being crucified And then John saying, God provided a miracle of water spilling out of the side of Christ. It reminds us of that old hymn where there's a lot of theology built into these hymns. Look at this one. Rock of ages cleft for me. Here's a place of provision and a place of protection. Let me hide myself in thee. I got a problem of sin. I should be judged. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be be of sin the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. Do you see both sides of that there? The blood, the water. The blood pictured in our communion service, the water pictured in our ordinance of baptism. That's just a rich picture from that old hymn. That hymn, by the way, was written in 1776. That's a date you can remember. And it's been sung ever since in the church. And we're going to sing it right now. And I just want you to think about the reality of what we do when we exercise and participate uh, in the practice of the two ordinances of the church, one in which we got to witness today, which I hope is an encouragement to you. And as you go out onto the patio and you grab your cup of coffee, you see those people that were baptized here and gave their testimony. I hope you hug them and encourage them and cheer them on. And I hope that you are an answer to their prayers because they have been praying that you, you would hear their testimony. And if you're not right with Christ, you'd see the need for the double cure of sin in, in your life the blood and the water, right? That you would be saved from the wrath of God and be purified by faith in Christ. That's some deep stuff, I suppose, in the typology of Scripture, but important ones for us to catch. Let me pray for you. God, I do ask for those that sit here and maybe they've been a part of our church for a long time. They hear constantly about the death of Christ, about the life of Christ, about our need for repentance and faith that you might remind us of how rich your word is and every detail important and nothing superfluous and 
every aspect giving us a reminder of who we are as people in need, so dependent upon your provision. We're thankful for Christ being struck in the most uh, severe way. Even as Zechariah 13 says, the sword striking the shepherd, the sheep being scattered, scattered at first in fear and timidity and then being scattered in power all the way to the other side of the planet here today that we're still proclaiming 2,000 years later the message of the fact that the blood of Christ and the cleansing water that comes from the Spirit to cleanse us from sin has been active in the lives of the people in this church. We thank you, God, for that. We celebrate the forgiveness we have in you, knowing we can't measure up without your provision, with the infusion of your grace and your righteousness in our lives. And for that, we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.